Thank you for tuning in to another edition of the Business of Fun podcast. It's me, Dave Wakeman, your host. And my guest today from True Tickets is Matt Zaracino, also fellow Spurs fan. So, you know, fellow Spurs fans always get a fair uh, chance to promote their products or talk about what they're working on here. Uh, before we talk about Matt and what Matt and I talked about, uh, let me remind you to sign up for the newsletter, talkingtickets.substack.com. It's Talking Tickets is the weekly newsletter, uh, five sections. It's about 10 minutes worth of material. Uh, some of my best thinking, it's how I work out my ideas, how I, an- I analyze, observe, make notes, you know, share things from around the world to help you sell more tickets. Uh, talkingtickets.substack.com. You can also visit my website. It's DaveWakeman.com. Uh, there is a blog. There is a calendar. There is a store. There's all kinds of stuff. And I will be announcing some dates when I will be in your city. Um, but I'm going to be, it looks like probably in New York. Well, definitely be in New York, uh, London, and potentially Sydney coming up in the next couple weeks. So uh, pay attention to the website and the newsletter or the podcast stream, and I will let you know what I'm up to. Uh, Matt Zaracina, besides being a big Spurs fan, is the CEO of True Tickets. Today, as I'm dropping this podcast, they are announcing a rules-based ticket idea that will power True Tickets. So we talk about what rules-based ticketing means. We talked about some of the ideas around NFTs and blockchain and tickets. Um, Matt, I think, has maybe a slightly different take on things than a lot of other people do. Uh, We talk about how the venues that they partner with set rules, some of the rules that True Tickets has found to work best. We talk about um, challenges in the ticket system. We talk about the volume of tickets that have gone through here so that uh, we can move past the point where, like, oh, this is untested technology. Uh, Matt shows that they've done millions and millions of dollars uh, worth of transactions. So that's, you know interesting to see because i think scale is a question that a lot of people have we talk about fraud we talk about uh the customer we talk about um market research we talk about efficiencies and developing relationships uh we talk about uh how to delight and excite the laws of of the sale we talk about um you know, malicious secondary market activity, brokers, um, creating value in the ecosystem, um, all kinds of good stuff. Uh, so this is my conversation with fellow Spurs fan, Matt Zaracino on the Business Fun Podcast. All right, so I want to welcome Matt from True Tickets to the Business of Fun Podcast. Matt, what's happening? Not much, Dave. How are you doing? Listen, I'm great. Uh, I am back to normal. I, I am like a hundred percent me. Uh, and when you said there's nothing, listen, don't lie to me because we're, uh, as we get ready to, as we're recording this, um, the Spurs are getting ready to play. Uh, so there's a lot going on. Southampton yeah. right on the six. There's a lot going Yeah, exactly. Season now, kicks off. Come out, yeah. This won't come out till afterwards. Uh, you know, until the next week, but I, I'm, I'm certain we're going to get a three, no win out of this one. So we'll just pretend that that <laughs> happened. Um, Sounds good. Well, thank you. Thank you for doing this. This is, um, you, uh, you got some exciting stuff to, 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 to share with us. Um, there is, um, some interesting angles that we can take here today, but I want to start out because you're making an announcement about rules-based tickets. And mm-hmm. um, I th- you said that that's like an inflection point for the business is a chance for the business mm-hmm. to push forward uh, and, you know, have a big leap forward. Explain to us, 
you know, talk to me like I'm a knucklehead, which I am, uh, about what rules-based tickets is and yeah. what it means for the, the growth of the business. Yeah, and, and I think it helps to start with the why, right? So when we think about the problems in ticketing, at the highest level, most of the problems in ticketing you know, revolve around issues of trust. And I'd actually see more of a lack of trust, right? So, and when you think about ticketing, trust is really defined as, as two parts to it. There's there's identity and that who who is in the possession of this ticket uh, and accountability. Have any of the, the rules or terms and conditions or terms of use associated with that ticket, have they been followed or adhered to? And without identity and accountability and ticketing, you lose trust and, and with it, you gain it. And what makes us different it, is that is that why our our focus is on providing identity and accountability to our clients and more broadly to the industry and whether that be let's say for rules based ticket sharing that we're we're talking about today which i think is going to be an incredibly powerful feature impactful feature for our clients incredibly well received by the industry but what that also portends for the future right is this this idea of a rules based marketplace if i can put rules around and enforce the the rules around sharing of a ticket then i can do the same thing in a in a marketplace concept uh, concept right so you know, what channels is the ticket distributed through? Uh, how much is it resold for? You know, what's the revenue split? And you can automate all of that. So that's really the foundation of our product. Uh, and to start, uh, we are we are essentially live with it now with all our, our nine clients. And uh, the three rules they get to start with are one is, can a ticket be shared? Right. So, you know, if I have two tickets, can I can I send one to Dave? The second one is, can it can a ticket be reshared? Right. So Dave receives this ticket. If it can be reshared, he can send it to someone else. If he can, he can only give it back to me. And the third is, does the original ticket buyer, the ticket purchaser, have to maintain a live ticket in their wallet? So let's say I have four tickets. Uh, if that that rule is in place, I can only share three of the four if those if those tickets are shareable. And what, what's great about this is these are really just business rules that our clients can implement and um, you know, several of our clients have implemented different machinations of those rule sets. And as we grow, we intend to broaden those rule sets as well as make them a bit more granular. But we're we're really excited to see, you know, what this means for our clients in the marketplace. So why did you settle on only is the three questions that people start with? Is that simply to help them get like a, a you know, sort of like a quick start or is it and is it sort of to help them limit the options so that they don't get overwhelmed? Because I know and maybe I'm wrong. And if I am, you tell me. But anytime you're trying to get people to adapt a new technology or a new idea, you have to break the old habits, right? And some of, you know, we've all gone through this period uh, over the last two and a half years where we've had severe pattern interruptions. And so in some ways, some of the some of the ideas and some of the patterns have been more firmly entrenched. And in some ways, uh, entirely new patterns have come up. Uh, and so when you're trying to get people to use this new technology, back to you, it's giving people just these three options. Is that a way to help them make the technology accessible at the start? Or is it just um, because these are the three most common challenges people are dealing with? Or, you know, why has that decision been made? It, that decision has actually been made in collaboration with our clients. What's what's interesting about this feature is it's actually been under work and in development for years. And one of the things that we've explored in depth with our clients is what what's the right balance between rules and number of rules and this is one of those situations where coco chanel's quote of less is more i think is applicable right when when i explain to you those three rules that covers a vast majority of the use cases you would say I, where you'd want to share a ticket 
or if you're a business where you'd want to limit the sharing of a ticket, there's really no need to go into anything that's kind of above and beyond that, at least to start. And so we worked with our clients to, to try to understand how can we cover the maximum amount of use cases with the, the minimum amount of, of constraints such that it, it is adopted, right? And, and it is not, you know, it is an overwhelming. And we think we found a very good balance. And what's interesting is we've actually been live for about a week. None of our clients have actually announced this product, but what we've seen is um, over a thousand tickets have been shared uh, amongst a handful of clients the product has been out with. There's been about 500 shares. Uh, and so we're seeing just organic adoption, right? And, and that's what's so incredibly validating about what we built is that our clients have done no communications, no marketing, no education, yet you're seeing over a thousand tickets be shared, uh, hundreds of hundred, you know, a thousand tickets be shared, I think 500 shares. So we're seeing on average about two tickets per share. Um, and what I think that is indicative of is we are essentially helping our clients meet an unmet expectation. Patrons, fans are expecting this kind of capability. They're used to this kind of capability. And what's nice about it too is unlike maybe some of the other options out there, we're doing real-time data right back. They're getting full transparency into it. When Dave accepts a ticket, that's going and that's going back into our clients' ticketing CRM, right? So True Tickets isn't handling that. They don't have to query us. They don't have to log into a portal. We've worked it to where they're seeing that real-time uh, in, their, in their ticketing system database. Let me ask you about this real-time data idea too because you say you you highlight that as like one of the big key, key um, attributes of what you're offering people how does people how, you know how does this real-time data work for you um, and your clients because one thing that i'm always concerned about is that people are overwhelmed with data and they don't have any sort of uh, framework for using the data um, is this real-time data stream that you're providing, is it something that has like real, like clear constraints, like the three questions that you that you have allowed people access to? Or is it something like where people are um, more likely to, you know, be overwhelmed with more data? So I would say in our industry, most of our clients are underwhelmed with data, right? When you talk to most teams, venues, organizations, they know what, 20, 30, 40% of the patrons attending their experiences. Compare that with, if you think more broadly about the attention economy, compare that with Netflix or Amazon or, or Facebook or Google, right? They they know what 90, 95, 99% of the people interacting with, you know, consuming the services they provide. And in this instance, I would say our industry is underwhelmed with data and we provide that kind of data, you know, who has possession of the ticket, when did they possess it in an easily digestible way for our clients. And so I would say, again, this is just, this is helping meet an unmet expectation. So this is not data rich, information poor. Not only are we providing them data, it's data they 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 really you know critically need, but also in a way that's very helpful for them. I mean, if you think about it, right? If I only know 25% of the people coming to my venue, if I'm Boston Symphony, they do 500,000 tickets a year. That means there's what, 375,000 people I don't know, how do I how do I market to them? How do I create content for them, right? The the first step to solving that problem is just having a way to engage. And that that's what this that's what our service provides for our clients is really re reveals who that shadow audience is and that's someone you can market to, that's someone you can connect to and that actually helps you create better curated content, better better address, you know, the experiences that your your patrons are looking for. So, let me see if I have this right. Again, if I'm completely wrong, you tell me. Because um so you're say so you say twenty to forty percent of people um, in an audience, the team, 
the, the, the venue, um, the organization will know. Mm-hmm. Uh, compared to like 90 or 95% for somebody like Disney Plus or Netflix or Apple. Um, I, I, I will buy that. Um, but I still kind of, um, I still waffle on whether or not we're, uh, you know, like underwhelmed with data. Because I also know that like from conversations I have, it's not so much that like customer data, it's just useless data. Like everybody's overwhelmed with useless data. And I guess, you know, I'm curious here because and, and part of it's like I'm playing a little bit of the dummy because I know exactly the answer that you're probably going to give me. Or I may even know the answer you're going to give me because we've talked about this before. But I'm going to ask you like a moron uh, so that people can benefit from the, the like I don't know what I'm talking about here. And so how do you help guide people with so when they get this new influx so like instead of let's say they go from 20 percent to 30 percent so and we use the boston symphony and they sell 500,000 tickets um you know 375,000 of those all of a sudden so if they they take 10 percent more that's another 50,000 people right um you know how do you help them make sense of this because the you know the challenge to me is um, you have all this data, but you don't know how to focus. You don't know how to like, you know, to use your attention, right? Instead of a laser, it's a shotgun. And, you know, so how do you, how do you overcome that? Because that's where I see the overwhelm with data thing. It's like, well, everybody has access to all this stuff and it's pointless because they have no funnel, no way of, um, narrowing down their focus to make it useful. So that leads me to ask you a question. How do you define, sure. how do you define useful versus useless data? Well, you have to ask, you have to have questions, right? Just like you had questions for your thing. And uh, I'm sure that at this point, most of the people who are listening to this thing have read the article I wrote about backward market research. It's like the first thing you need to know to define whether or not data is useful or useless is to understand what question you're going to ask, right? Like, what are you trying to solve for? And then, you know, so you have to start there. And what I find the challenge for most places is that they don't have some kind of um, a question that guides their research. They don't they, like how they approach data. They're just like, oh, and I'm going to look at the data and I'm going to see what the data tells me. But the, the data can give you all kinds of mixed signals and like all kinds of like, um, you know, false signs if you don't have something that you're really using as a uh, focusing mechanism. Yeah. So like, how do I define it is like, well, you got to figure out what the, what the hell you're looking for to start with. Or everything's so, useless or useful, you, you know, either it's both sides, you know, depending on what that, you know, if you don't have that question mapped out, that's my answer. So to that extent, yeah, I can't speak for our clients when it comes to the, the questions they want to ask or why the questions, uh, why they're asking the questions they're asking. What I am confident in is having going from 150,000 to, to 200,000 potential avenues or people to ask those questions to is powerful and is impactful. Um, and that's a good starting point, right? And that that then helps inform maybe what your question should be. It's those connections, it's those relationships, that's the foundation for helping you actually assess how good is your marketing, right? I would say that, you know, if you don't know 75% of the people coming into your venue or your organization, you're incredibly handicapped even if you're asking the right questions, because there, there's channels, there's relationships, there's connections you could be making that could, you, if you're asking the right questions and doing the right things, that could inf- help inform you much, much better. And you might be missing that. And look, models are only as good as the data going into them, right? And if you're missing out on data points just because you're not collecting that information when you have means to do so, you're putting yourself again at a disadvantage. You're not competing. You know, the Boston Symphony is not competing with the Boston Red Sox. They're competing with Netflix. 
you know, it's funny that you say such things because I, I um, went through an exercise with an organization where we looked at who their real competition is. And I think that um, most people, you know, and we'll, again, we'll, throughout this, we'll use the Boston Symphony as the example just because it, it's the first one that came up. So there's some consistency. If you, you know, you, you probably start the thing and they probably do assume that, like, to an extent, they are competing against the Red Sox or they are competing against, um, you know, the Celtics or the Bruins, right? Or um, I'm forgetting some of the other stuff that would be right there, you know, something going on on the commons or whatever. But actually, what you find, like, when you dig in deeply is, um that it's doing nothing is your biggest you know not going to an event uh watching some kind of streaming service uh working later or extra Mm -hmm. you know those were like actually like when we were looking through those were the three biggest competitions was like you know doing nothing because everybody's overwhelmed having to finish up some work and it's like just eats into their time or just like zoning out on the couch those were and and i think that um to your point understanding that actually helps you become a better marketer. It does help you understand, um, you know, how to reach these people or what they, what they really are. Like, you know, because I, I'm sure that, and you may not have the data for this now, but, it, it, but you probably have an opinion on this. A lot of times, if you don't have this access to all these customers you're talking to, right. You don't know who 80% of your customers are, you often probably can paint a picture that's incorrect, right? Like you probably assume that people go a lot more than they really do. Like, and I would bet you would find that like, if you have a season ticket, like if you have a Boston Symphony Orchestra season ticket and it maybe has 10 performances and this is uh, Dave, Dave and Matt, we go together. We love the symphony. We're going to go. Um, we might actually really only go to like two each. And then like the other ones we go and we give it out, but people are going, Matt, and Dave are like great. They're great because they go, they, ha- they have a 10, ticket pass and they go all the time and that hurts that harms people Mm -hmm. and i think this goes to like one of the points that we were talking about earlier which is like one of the challenges adaptation of this technology or any new technology has with it is getting people to think differently um you know so like from your point of view you, you know with the technology that true tickets has you know how do you approach you know, thinking differently, approaching these data and this idea differently, because you obviously had to do that for your business. But how do you help your partners see this as well? Because that, that to me, that when you said that when we were like BS and before, that really struck me because I was like, going, that's all I do is try to show people, you know, numbers, facts, figures to see the world a different way, because it becomes very easy to look at things only the way you've always looked at them. Well, there's, and there's a quote I like to paraphrase from Henry Ford, where it's, if you ask customers what they wanted at a time, they would have said a mechanical horse, right? So to some extent, it's, and that's why I'm excited about what we're rolling out, right? We're, we're, we're really showing people how you can make ticketing a strategic capability for your organization. In the past, again, it was more of a pain point, right? You had the box office controlled ticketing, and and it was really a line item expense. And one of the things that we try to to talk through with our clients and a lot in prospective clients when we sit down with them and say, hey, tell us what the pain points for you are when it comes to ticketing or organization wide. And as they start to describe their pain points and ticketing, ticket delivery, or even from an organizational standpoint, that helps us then understand the areas where we impact you know, their their operations, right? One of the, we've seen a lot of very interesting things even before we made this announcement. I mean, we've been live with with nine clients, one in you know eight in eight in the U.S. and one in London, 
We've to date delivered 1.7 million tickets and delivered about a, a million and a quarter. And uh, what we've seen, you know, for example, is a is a, a drop in the no-show rate by two to seven percent with our service relative to other ticket delivery methods, whether it's PDF print at home, hard tickets, pick up at will call. Why is that? Well, look, scalpers, brokers are probably avoiding our tickets, right? So the same people who would eat a ticket, you know, are are avoiding and going towards other ticketing, um, ticket delivery options. I would say that our ticket, the way the way our service works is not only is it digital ticketing, but it's also effect- effectively de facto event management. Right. There's a story with our client in Orlando. They had their their front yard festival and a thunderstorm rolled through at like seven o'clock and they had to postpone everything 30 minutes. And we had just implemented with them last year and everyone was kind of running around the office. Oh, my God, we got to do email calls. We got to do radio announcements, all this kind of stuff. And, and Nick, our client there says, wait a minute, I just have to update the ticket and people are going to log on and see it went from seven to seven thirty. And that was it. Right. So you're in and think about like, you know, people forgetting tickets or tickets going to spam. Right. And you might say, well, a two to seven percent drop in the no-show rate isn't that important. It is. If you're delivering a hundred thousand tickets, that's two thousand to seven thousand more people coming to your venue that wouldn't have come via another method. And what's your per cap? Ten, twenty, thirty, thirty dollars. I mean, you're talking tens of thousands of dollars just right there if you're a hundred thousand ticket venue, right? The set. The second one we've seen is from an operation standpoint. Um, our, our clients have been able to restaff to, to make for a more optimal client experience. We went to the public theater when we, we installed with them last year and the client there, Rich, you know, we, he was kind enough to give us tickets to a show. We got to see our ticket scan and look, ticket scanning isn't super sexy, but when it's the product you you've built, it's pretty cool. And I remember asking Rich, I said, okay, what's, what's been the impact of true tickets? And he goes, look at the, the, the will call. And I said, yeah, there's nobody there. And he goes, exactly. There's nobody there. And from an operational standpoint, we've seen people be able to, to restaff and go from four will you know box office will call attendance down to one or two and restaff and, and put those in other areas where they're driving more value, right? It's similar to when ATMs came online. People said, "Oh, bank tellers are going to be out of business. There's no going to going to be no need for bank tellers." Well, it finds out like a bank teller's use of time is is much better doing other things than just counting money, right? And then you think about the other thing too is fraud. You know, for a lot of our clients, you know, fraud and and malicious secondary market actors are a pain. And we've seen through our service a reduction in greater than 90% in unauthorized secondary market listings and chargebacks and any sort of issues associated with fraud. There's a great story again from Orlando when I went down there. Um, I, I was, this was the first show we did over a thousand tickets for. Shocking, right? Now we, we've delivered a million, you know, almost two million and delivered over a million and a quarter, which is crazy to me. Um, but I, I go and I'm watching everything operate. It's going great. I go to my hotel room. I drop off my stuff. I'm coming down the elevator and four guys get in the elevator with paper printouts of our digital tickets. And I know they're not going to work, right? And I'm thinking to myself, don't say anything. Uh, but these guys keep talking about the tickets. In fact, one guy goes, I, I don't know if these tickets look legit. And we get to the the lobby and I turn to him and I'm actually wearing my true tickets hat. Right. And you can see the logo on the ticket, which I, I kind of got a kick out of. And I go, just so you know, those tickets aren't going to work. And then, of course, they immediately go to me and they go, well, how do you know they're not going to work? I said, well, I'm the CEO of the company doing the ticket delivery today. And I can tell you this, they're not going to work. And then he goes, I paid thirty five hundred dollars for these tickets. Mind you, face value of one hundred fifty dollars each. He actually pretty much paid as much in fees for a secondary market purchase as he should have paid for those tickets. Now, the great thing was, is this is a problem we solve for, right? We go back to the issues in ticketing that revolve around trust. It's identity. Who should have this ticket and accountability? Are the terms and conditions being followed? And so I walked him over and said, you're going to scan the ticket. It's going to scan not authorized, which is a notification to our client that said, hey, at one point this ticket was good, but it's not. 
I'm going to walk you over to Nick. Nick's going to resell you these tickets at face value. The guy's like, I'm going to pay more money. I go, here's how this is going to work out, right? He's going to sell you those tickets at face value because then you're going to call your credit card company and you're going to go, hey, I bought these tickets. They didn't get me into the show. I want my money back. And the credit card always takes the side of the person, right? Because that's who their customer is. Oh, you know, Mr. Mr. Smith, here's your $3,500 back. Sorry about that. We'll take care of it. Then what's going to happen is this broker is going to hop onto their portal and see that $3,500 sale they're super excited about because they only paid 700 bucks for those tickets goes to zero. And, you know, was that tickets on sale site going to eat that cost and still pay that broker? No, they're not. Right. So then that broker in a couple of days is going to call their credit card company and go, somebody stole my credit card number. I don't want these. You know, this was an unauthorized sale. I want my money back. And the credit card company is going to go, oh, yes, sir. You know, uh, Mr. Doe, like, I, I, here's your money back. And then they're going to go back to the Dr. Phillips Center. Right. And go, hey, Dr. Phillips Center, you have to prove that you know, this was not a fraudulent credit card transaction. And Nick, at this point, up until something like True Tickets, couldn't fight those off. Those were tens of thousands of dollars a year in cost for him. And in this instance, he said, fine, take your money back. I don't care. I made myself whole because I, I ended up selling the person who went to the show tickets at face value. And by the way, now I know their their actual name. I know who they are. I can market to them. All right. So those are examples from an organizational level of how when you make when you invest in a service that makes something strategic like we do for ticketing, how it positively impacts your organization, right? So it, I'd say most of the conversation where we're talking to people, it's like, oh, you know, my ticketing department budget for digital tickets is X. Well, look, if if you're only concerned about it from a departmental level, then we're not the solution for you. If you're looking to to make you know, positive organizational change and positively impact your organization through ticketing, we can do that for you. So what you're trying to what you try to do is you try to take it to a higher level, right? Which is you know that's an old that's an old Dave trick. Dave and Coco <laughs> Chanel have a uh, have a lot of lot in common because uh, you, you've I'm certain you've heard me tell tell you that like bad marketers make things and good marketers kill stuff and it's mm-hmm. you know and yeah. Uh, so let me ask you this because you're you're trying to take it to a higher level, which it really revolves around the customer, which I think the customer often, even though the customer is the heart of the business. Sometimes the customer also takes a back seat in the decision-making process, uh, and in too many places. And that's probably because partly there's silos, which you know hamstring anybody. And then there's just like people are over have been overwhelmed by like so many you know cutbacks in staff and everything else. Um, but and one of the things you brought up over and over again because this goes right to the heart of that experience are the rules on resale, right? Because you said it helps with the no-show rate of two to 7%, which you rightly pointed out, goes directly to the bottom line because an empty seat does not buy beer. An empty seat does not buy a t-shirt. Nope. Yeah, Uh, an empty seat doesn't buy more tickets. Nope. (laughs) For another show. Uh, And and that's the way I show it. I was like, oh, you know how much money you're losing just by not driving people into that have already bought your tickets in there. And, you know, for some of the organizations I work with, it's millions of dollars a year, right? You know, uh, because they're they're huge. And I was like, all these challenges, you can solve it just by focusing on getting people in the door. But I want to understand a little bit more about the rules on the resale um, because, um, you know, I've I dealt with the, the secondary market for a long time. I don't have like I, I, I'm probably agnostic about the se- the good or the bad of the secondary market at this point. Um, I go through phases. Uh, I'm right now in a, a completely agnostic. And that's partly because I think that the brokers can provide some value, especially now um, as things are recovering. Uh, but that doesn't necessarily mean that they will do it in the best 
possible way for everybody involved. They will do it in the best possible way for them. Um, you know, so like, what are these rules on resale and how do they impact your partners and also the uh, the end customer? Um, because I know that that's probably one thing that people have a lot of questions about. So a couple things. In ticketing, I think people conflate who the customer is, right? So there's the consumer of the service, which is the patron of the fan, right? Who goes to the the, the venue. The, the client actually in ticketing, and this is probably a blog post I'll put together here at some point soon, is actually the venue or the organization or the league, right? They're the ones who make the ticketing system purchase. Yeah. You know, when I go to the Red Sox, you know, I have I have no say over whether or not they they continue to use tickets.com, right? If I go to TD Garden, I have no say over whether the Celtics or the Bruins continue to use Ticketmaster. But we as a patron kind of feel or a fan feel like, oh, we're the we're the we're the we're the um we're the customer. No, we're the consumer. The client's actually the the venue, right? And so when we think about the secondary market and that for for our clients, up until now, there's there's just basically been this diametrically opposed option. And it's, do I want control of my ticket or, or do I want distribution? And I couldn't have both. If I wanted distribution, I just sacrificed control, just had to kind of put up with it. If I wanted control, I lost out on distribution. And, and what we're exploring now with our clients is, is how to couple control and distribution with the secondary market, right? If I if you talk to Gabe at the Roundabout Theater, he's going to tell you, look, there's not a world in which I can compete on your search engine optimization or SEO with a SeatGeek or a Vivid Seats. I'd love to be able to leverage that, right? The Roundabout Theater is never going to be able to compete with that marketing budget. That doesn't mean the Roundabout should have to sacrifice all control of their ticketing and, and lose out on margin for their, their best tickets, right? And so it's it's coupling those things together. And so when, when we start to kind of think forward or about the future, about what rules-based ticket sharing means for rules-based marketplaces, it's actually pretty simple, right? It's it's what are the the channels or distribution channels or partners that clients want to engage in and where do they want those, those tickets to be allowed to be transacted? If I'm the roundabout, do I strike a deal with SeatGeek and they're my only uh, preferred venue or partner that can distribute tickets? Uh, the, the, the second one would be, you know, what are the pricing rules around that? What, what can be done? Right. You know, do I allow for above face value? Did someone purchase that? And the second is what's the revenue model? Right. If it's if it goes above face value, do I require, let's say you're Dave, the person selling a roundabout ticket, and you're selling it above face value. Do I make 50 percent of that markup come back to my organization as a donation? You know, how do I educate you on that? There, there's so many different things to think about. But again, when you think about the rules, there's there's actually only a handful of rules you have to kind of enforce and and be able to enforce to make this effective. And and that's that's really what we're we're exploring with our clients. And that, I think that's where it's it get it becomes really interesting. So I would say we don't have it yet. Um, it's one of those things that that we're we're exploring with our clients and we're we're progressing down the path of. You know, on the broker angle, look again, we're actually an agnostic service. We're just an enforcement engine. We're a rules engine. Don't steal my language, man. Don't steal my <laughs> language. <laughs> but, you know, it, it, what it's doing is it's making brokers kind of go back to who they were back in the day, which is yeah. people who who had to work for their business. They had to develop relationships. They had to add value. Look, there's no one. There's nothing stopping anyone from going to, let's say, the Seegers from Center and striking a deal and saying, look, I'm going to I'm going to take some of your tickets. I'd like to buy them at this value, which is maybe below face value and sell them. Right. But that's work. If I if I if I can contrast that with the Orlando story, that was just ticket flipping. That's someone who's quote unquote a broker, but they're not adding any value. That's just rent seeking behavior. And so, from a standpoint Still of my of, language again, man. Oh, I'm, I'm sorry, Dave. That's awesome. <laughs> it's too bad. It's too bad. Too bad. An we're, 
<laughs> too bad we're not. Uh, too bad we don't have like a bingo card or something like that. But it's the truth, right? When you look at it, like what happened in Orlando, there was no value being added there. In fact, that was actually value destruction. In that, yeah. what actually happened was the person who went to those seats bought them for face value and went there. But there was all this rigmarole around, oh, I printed off a ticket. I had the heartburn of like, I don't think these are real tickets. Then I scanned the ticket. It didn't get me in. I had to go pay for them again for face value. I had to call my credit card company. That's value destruction. Mm-hmm. And I would say, again, this this boils down to the issues of identity and accountability and ticketing. When you solve for those, you create trust and you create then efficiencies, right? This actually creates efficiencies for the industry. Now, obviously, look, the people who can monetize the the opaqueness of the industry, they're going to be you know, disenfranchised and they're going to be negatively impacted. But again, in the Orlando story, I don't feel bad for the the secondary market, the broker who was snuffed out. Because there was no value added there. Yeah. Uh, what I like here is that, well, so number one, like the old school ticket brokers, where it was like you had a guy in New York or wherever, those guys, though, though, I mean, because that was how my experience with it was like, you worked your ass off for your money. You'd make money, but like, you know, you, you work really hard for it. And like, you had to build these relationships and you often had, a book of business of people who just d- couldn't be bothered with a 10 a.m. on sale. And and, and that's totally fine. It, it was good. But what I really like here is that the promise of the secondary market and like these platforms like StubHub or SeatGeek or any of th- them is that like, oh, yeah, you're going to be able to access some of this data and you're going to be able to get some of this customer information back. And most of the time we know that the, like that doesn't really happen. That's like not not really going down. And so by offering these rules up, right, which um, you, we've talked about here, it gives people back a little bit of that, right? Because it's um, it makes the relationship like a little more balanced. Mm-hmm. Um, because I'm with you, right? Like some of some of the stuff that goes on now, it's just speculation. It's just gambling. It's rent seeking behavior. Um, there is absolutely no value created at all. The only value is that like either you have a bot or you got lucky on a, an on sale. That that is the only value you you have thing you have, and to me that's like you said, it's destruction of value. Mm-hmm. Um, one point though, I don't know if you even use this with your um, partners or not, uh, but the Orlando story is, is is great too because the thing about it is is like those people that you met in the elevator who were questioning the ticket, they were uncertain about what was going on. They'd spent thirty five hundred bucks, even if the venue had nothing to do with it. It's still a negative impact on their brand as well, because they, they they don't necessarily disconnect the two as being bad. It's just overall a bad experience and everybody gets knocked down. And like now they ha- they had a great experience because you, you intervene. But um, something like this really provides an opportunity to cut out some of those negative situations and those negative occurrences that can impact your a organization's brand equity with their end customer that they might not even know are happening. Is that, you know, that, that that's exactly it. You, one of our clients um, are actually our first client was the Adrian R is, I shouldn't say past tense. They still are, uh, is the Adrian R center in Miami. And it was very insightful for me because they actually brought up the, the brand impact, right? Dave, you mm-hmm. buy a ticket for Hamilton, you go on to Vivid, you pay $500, you go and you're like, oh, I paid $500 for Hamilton. I guess I'm going to have really good seats. And suddenly your fourth tier back row at the R center, which is really steep up there. Uh, and you're saying, and then you, you, you don't see the face value, but then you complain to the box office and they 
they, you know, maybe somebody whited out or, you know, photoshopped out the, the face value or something like that. And, you know, the box office has nothing to do with that, but the patron automatically assumes like they had something to do with it. Right. And, and again, you're, yeah, to, to your, to your point about rent seeking behavior, look, it's not the thousand dollar orchestra seat that gets, gets thrown up on, on vivid. I mean, I guess unless you're you know, Bruce Springsteen and they're selling for 7,000 pop or something like that, <laughs> but you know, it's typically the, the $25 ticket, right. That, yeah. that someone's trying to flip for a hundred cause they think they can make it. And you know, to well, an extent, can. that's the, that's well, you, the dirty you, you secret can too. And, you, you can. It, and some people would say, Hey, you know, there'll be a, there'll be a retort saying, well, you know, you're not pricing your tickets in accordance with the market. Well, what about mission driven organizations? Think about the art center. Their, their objective is to make the arts available for the greater Miami-Dade community. And if they determine that there's a segment of their population that can only afford a $25 ticket to Hamilton and they want to, their mission is to make Hamilton available for that population, they should be, as the Adrian Art Center, allowed mm-hmm. to do that yep. and allowed to enforce that. Mm-hmm. So the fact that, and this goes back to a ticket not being an asset, a ticket is a revocable license. And so when we think about high level what rules-based ticket sharing means and you, and you talked about it right like when the venue or the issuer of a ticket can trust their ticketing that means their patrons can too right what does that mean that means hey you're going to get into the event from you know if you're a patron i'm going to get this thing i'm going to get in i'm not worried about it right like I, i'm no longer getting that like panic attack when i hit click and pay for that ticket or or uh down you access the ticket on uh, my phone the second is you know if you're the venue organizer, you can trust you know who attended, right? You're you're now getting that that chain of custody, that life cycle of that ticket. You're you're now seeing who's interacting with your tickets, when they're interacting with your tickets, and when they're coming. And, and the third is that you can trust your rules being followed. It goes back to the Adrian R. Center issue with with Miami, um, uh, in Miami, and in the brand impact. Mm-hmm. And look, also too, when you're going to a show and you see someone irate at will call, that's a negative experience too. And maybe your ticketing experience is fine. I talked to an NFL team. They, they let me know they spend on average 30 to 45 minutes, you know, with a, with a, a CSR, with a person who's been impacted by a fraudulent ticket purchase that they can't solve. And for our clients, when you, again, when you have identity and accountability, those, those issues are solved in minutes because you're either the tickets either attributable to you or was attributed to you and you no longer are, you know, it's no longer attributed to you or you know, they can identify who the, the, the malicious actor was in the process and then correct it. And so taking something that you couldn't solve where someone's just upset, kind of, kind of like when you're at the, you know, the Delta gate and that it's that person in line, everyone else has like a two second question for the gate agent, but there's a person who's just upset and they just want someone to talk to and they're there for 30 minutes. You're saying, look, we just got questions. Like this isn't a therapy session, right? But that, again, that's time, that's efficiency, that that's impacting your brand. It's impacting your ability to service your customers. And for, for our industry, right? It's about delight and excite. And you need to think about that through the entire process. You can't just kind of look at ticketing and go, well, ticketing's a nightmare, but once they get in this door and in their seat, then we're going to blow them away, right? You can't just ignore one aspect uh, of the process. You know, I'm a Naval Academy grad and, and they make us learn laws of the sea. And there's one that I always remember. And it's, it, it's something like this. I'll probably mess it up a little bit, but it's on the strength of one link in the cable dependeth the might of the chain. Who knows when thou mayest be tested, so live that thou bearest the strain. Well, if ticketing's your weakest link, that's all you can bear. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I I don't disagree with any of this because I've often been uh, 
telling people like, look, if you've worked, you're, you know, so hard to build a brand, right? And, and the examples I use, you know, I use the Grateful Dead and I use Pearl Jam and, I, you know, these people who are, have really strict controls on their tickets. If you've done the work to create that brand equity and you want to sell your tickets all at like $90, right? Like the Pearl Jam tour, knowing that you could probably charge twice that much easily, well within your rights because you why because you've established that connection with your customers you 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 want to limit people to be able to do these things it's cool um because i know there's tons of people who don't right but that's on you and if you if you want to change the rules because your brand's not strong enough yeah then yet you probably do need help but if you have that strong brand like the art center right and you only want those things to sell at 25 dollars in the you know the fourth tier because there's a segment of your market that you'd love to get into the arts because the arts has a transformational, you know, power. Um, you should be able to do that because mm -hmm. that's a, I mean, you can't get through Miami without seeing that beautiful, that beautiful oh. building. It's a beautiful building and it's that's like a, so cool. Yeah. yeah, I, yeah. I mean, that's like one of my favorite buildings in Miami. It's just amazing looking. No, it's, a, it's a beautiful building. I am so fortunate. We, we have an amazing team. We have an amazing company. We have an amazing product. But we also have amazing clients. I, I used to work as a consultant, right? And I, I, I would joke that you kind of get three things in cons consulting. You get, you get the team you want, you get the location you want, you get the project you want. Nobody in consulting ever gets all three. Maybe you get two of the three. Usually you get one of the three. And, and, and I get to wake up every day work to work with an amazing team, creating, you know, being a positive agent of change in this industry. And working for clients who, one, are amazing and two, are just amazing to go see, right? Yeah. The Arch Center right on the Biscayne Bay. You go to the Seegerstrom Center and they've got that massive arch and that plaza. Uh, the Dr. Phillips Center, you know, that the new Steinitz Hall in the front, you know, that that glass front. I mean, Tanglewood, Boston Symphony. I, I, I am going to stop now cause, and I, I apologize to any of our clients that I'm leaving out because I don't mean to offend them, but I don't want to list them all. But uh, I'd like to list them all, but I, you know, I don't want to get into that uh, advertisement aspect of it. But they're, they're so amazing. I, I enjoy going to every one of them because you know their goal is people are coming there to like experience something different to experience joy. Right. And, and we get to experience that too with them. So that that's, what's really exciting. That's what I'm incredibly thankful for. Yeah. There, and there's time for plugs at the end, Matt, there's time Got for it. plugs at the end. Um, but no, that's, I mean, it, it's absolutely true. It is um, one of the things of working for myself is that I, I, I am able to achieve those three things more likely more often than not when I, you, because know, you, you, that used to be the case when I worked inside bigger organizations was like on, that a lot I couldn't control. <laughs> uh, but now, now one final thing I want to touch on before I let you go today, um, because I thought it was interesting and it really mirrors my thought on strategy and the way I talk with people about strategy. And it's also reflective of the big leap of faith that you're taking by, you know, introducing rules based tickets. Um, you know, and it's the idea that like you're testing a hypothesis and you don't necessarily understand um you don't know if it's gonna work or not. And I and the way I want to ask the question because I think it's important for people to understand is like you've made a strategic choices, right? And um are they right or wrong? We don't know yet, right? This is a challenge that everybody's dealing with, right? And all you can really do is like make the best choices you have access to because all the data, right, that we talked about earlier, all everything we happened in the past, the future is unknowable right now. Um, you, you have to take a leap of faith. You know, how have you guided 
true tickets to take that leap of faith, because I think that's important for everybody right now to understand and to think about as we kind of try to recover from, you know, all the impacts of COVID. First things first, you have to acknowledge that it's there, right? And you have to be okay with it. I think it's accept the angst. And look, it, it takes a special kind of person to work in a startup. It takes a special kind of person to to want to go down this journey and accept that, right? The, the, there's a there's a great uh, HBR video. Strategy is not planning or stra- you know planning versus strategy, right? Planning is things. Roger we can Martin. Control. Yeah, planning is things we can control, right? Planning is comfortable. I'm gonna I'm gonna build this factory. I'm gonna hire this many people. I'm gonna make this many widgets. Planning is comfortable because it's known. When you're truly testing a strategic hypothesis, you have inclinations about the outcome, but you can't prove it. You can't guarantee it. In fact, we had a our board meeting uh, last week, and obviously everything was well. You know, what do you what do you think this is going to drive? What do you think the revenue is going to be? What it was your client prospect list look like? How many do you think you're going to convert? And honestly, I said I don't know. And that's just the reality. And I, I, I'm very optimistic. I'm very excited because the the re, the reception we've had uh, in the in the last week, week and a half, two weeks that we've we've rolled this out has been incredible. And I believe that people will see the value in in what this can do for them, and and they'll be able to connect that to their business. And that's going to be that kind of transformational um, transformational moment, right? So think about. Think about things where there have been massive shifts or people took strategic bets, right? Um, independent of maybe people's personal feelings about Elon Musk, before before the Model S rolled out, people had a vision of what an electric car was, right? It's, oh, it's small, it's not performant, can't do much, can't carry much. Maybe I'll, if I only if I only travel down the street, maybe I'll get one, right? Like it's got to be smaller, compact. And then the Model S rolls out and just completely changes how you think about electric cars. Um, smartphones, right? There were there was the Palm and the BlackBerry before the iPhone. And people were saying, why do I need this iPhone? Like there's the BlackBerry and there's the Palm. And then because of how the iPhone was designed, it was strategically different. And again, that's why when we started this podcast, I think it's so important to focus on the why about what we do, what we do, right? We're not We're not a consultancy. We're not doing statements of work. We're not an app developer who's just saying, all right, well, what do you want in your app? We're focused on solving identity and accountability problems in ticketing. And today that starts with rules-based ticket sharing. Tomorrow that's about marketplace infrastructure. That's the vision, that's the direction. We're a dynamic product, we're not a static product. We're constantly evolving towards that vision. You know, and I, I think that's why as the CEO, I think one of the things I, I'd like to think I do well is acknowledge right, that there's just some unknowns and we have to be okay with it. And, but we also know too, that those unknowns are going to be revealed to us and and we're going to have a great reveal for us here in in the next couple of weeks as we go to, as we go to the Tessitura learning and community conference. And then we're going to, we're going to have more reveals beyond that. And you just have to be open to that and you have to accept that. And what helps with this company too is, is that future you're building for that your hypothesis testing is that exciting for people? I think people are willing to take the risk. If the future that you're working towards, if you achieve it, if they see it as being worthwhile. And for for me at True Tickets, why I've been doing this for four and a half years now, I can't believe it's it's been four and a half years since since I, I left my time in corporate innovation and doing it. Um, that's what keeps me going is 
you know, the vision for me is still very much tangible, still very much achievable, even though it's it's not certain. Yeah, no, I, and thank you for explaining that because I feel that one, um, it's a message that I try to share with people. Right? It's like you have to you have to be comfortable especially the part about having to be comfortable with the angst you could you absolutely must be comfortable with the angst um but that there's nothing guaranteed but standing still will guarantee that people are going to pass you by Mm -hmm. and you know and if i can only beat that into people's heads every day i will (laughs) because it's so important and you know who knows what's going to happen i'm excited for you you know and i i think you know it's cool. It's cool technology. Um, you know, some of the, you know, some of the access to the data, even though I was trying to act like I was like a knucklehead and didn't know that, like, what, you know, so I was asking questions in a way that like a third grader might so that I seemed like I was uh, completely a novice in the thing are really great. Um, giving people the ability to control how their tickets are used. Um, it's important because your brand, I think, is going to become more and more important than it was even before. And I think people have underinvested and um, underappreciated their brands for a long time. Uh, and so, you know, all of these things, I think, are just really, really important for people. And, and, I, and you know, I hope, you know, with the launch of this of the new rules based ticketing um, and, you know, some of the new stuff that's going to be rolled out. I, I wish you guys the best. Um, and I promised you the opportunity to plug. So plug away, Matt. How can people right. find you? Yeah. Plug, plug, plug. You can find me on uh, I'm on Twitter at ML Zaracena uh, on LinkedIn. I think it's M Zaracena uh, also on Instagram. I can't remember my Instagram handle, um, but I guess the, the remaining clients, because we, we only have so many, right? I missed I missed the public in New York. I missed Roundabout. In New York, I miss the Stras in Tampa. You can't uh, we forget covered... Gabe because if he, you yeah, do, I can't forget Gabe. Gonna, no, 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 he's no, no, no. Send I know, I know. Emails we've got, like, why yeah. did you bring me? Why did you mention me? <laughs> we've got the the Roundhouse in London. <laughs> uh, we've got the Smith Center in Las Vegas. We we talked about Seagerstrom, uh, and then I think uh, oh, a new one. Uh, we just we just signed the Kauffman Center in uh, Kansas City, Missouri. So I'll, I'll be heading to Kansas City after after they launch for a night. Uh, check out how things are working with them. Catch a show. Maybe grab some uh, Oklahoma Joes uh, down there. That's awesome. Well, Matt, thank you for doing this, man. Awesome, Dave. Always good to chat. Let me know what you thought about my conversation with Matt by sending me an email. It is my name, Dave at DaveWakeman.com. Make sure you get the Talking Tickets newsletter by signing up at TalkingTickets.Substack.com. And you can also... Find out what's going on with me. Uh, find out all kinds of crazy stuff by visiting my website. It's DaveWakeman.com. Uh, as always, I want to thank you so much for being here and listening. Uh, any guests, any ideas, any feedback on the podcast, just drop me a note. Let me know. I'm always looking to uh, make this thing more valuable and more um, useful to people. So send me an email, Dave at DaveWakeman.com. And as I have said since the pandemic started, if you need somebody to chat to, I'm happy to be an ear to bend. I'm happy to be there to crack some really terrible dad jokes or just to be somebody to lend an ear. Uh, Send me an email. It's DavidDaveWakeman.com. And as always, if you like the podcast, share it, Uh, rate it, review it, and subscribe. It means the world to me. Thank you so much, and I'll talk to you soon. Take it easy.